The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. you to take your copy of the scriptures and turn with me in Luke's gospel to chapter 8. Luke chapter 8, we'll consider together verses 26 to 39. As you're doing that, let me uh, just say on behalf of my wife Rhonda and I, what a pleasure as well as a privilege it's been to be with you these last three weeks, one more next week. Uh, It has really been a joy. You've all been so kind to us. And uh, it's been a joy to be able to serve uh, your church and your pastoral staff a little bit and give them some freedom over the summer or through this month at least so that they don't have to carry this responsibility. Uh, But it has really been um, a pleasure to be with you in this little series of encountering Jesus and extending His grace, uh, portraits of the gospel from Luke. And today we're in another portrait of the gospel as we look at Luke chapter 8, and the portrait is in verse 26 to 39, but I'd like to begin by reading in verse 22 to give us some more of a context, maybe more of the frame around the portrait that'll help us appreciate precisely what it is God would have us to see about His Son, Jesus, from this episode. So Luke chapter 8. I'll read from verse 22, but we'll begin really our focus in verse 26. One day he got into a boat with his disciples and he said to them, let us go across to the other side of the lake. So they set out and as they sailed, he fell asleep and a windstorm came down on the lake and they were filling with water and were in danger. And they went and woke him saying, master, master, we are perishing. And he awoke and rebuked the wind and the raging waves, and they ceased, and there was calm. He said to them, Where is your faith? And they were afraid, and they marveled, saying to one another, Who then is this, that he commands even winds and water, and they obey him? Then they sailed to the country of the Gerasenes, which is opposite Galilee. When Jesus had stepped out on land, there met him a man from the city who had demons. For a long time he had worn no clothes, and he had not lived in a house but among the tombs. And when they saw Jesus, he cried out and fell down before him and said with a loud voice, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I beg you, do not torment me. For he had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man. For many a time it had seized him. He was kept under guard and bound with chains and shackles. But he would break the bonds and be driven by the demon into the desert. Jesus then asked him, What is your name? And he said, Legion. For many demons had entered him. And they begged him not to command them to depart into the abyss. 
Now a large herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him to let them enter these. So he gave them permission. Then the demons came out of the man and entered the pigs, and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and drowned. When the herdsmen saw what had happened, they fled and told it in the city and in the country. Then the people went out to see what had happened, and they came to Jesus and found the man from whom the demons had gone sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. And those who had seen it told them how the demon-possessed man had been healed. Then all the people of the surrounding country of the Gerasenes asked him to depart from them, for they were seized with great fear. So he got into a boat, into the boat and returned. The man from whom the demons had gone out begged that he might be with him. But Jesus sent him away, saying, Return to your home and declare how much God has done for you. And he went away, proclaiming throughout the whole city how much Jesus had done for him. Let's pray. O Lord our God, we need you every hour. Every hour we need you. No less when we come to study your word, and we need the ministry of the Holy Spirit to illumine our hearts to the sacred text that reveals to us your Son, the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so, Lord, we ask for the presence and power of the Holy Spirit to help us to see Christ in his glory, in his victory. And we pray as we see Him, we would be drawn by Your grace to believe in Him, to submit to Him, and to follow Him. Lord, we pray that through the preaching of Your Word, the Lord Jesus Himself would speak to His people, that He would call and liberate the lost, that He would cleanse and and build up His people, and Lord, that we would be compelled with the confidence that is ours in Christ to walk through the world and to go into the world to be your witnesses. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. There's a little novel about a Christian family in Scotland in 1707. The main character in the little novel is a boy named Mac Ayton. And the point of the novel is to chronicle how the Christian family and the Christian upbringing that Mac was raised with interweaves with his adventures and with the risks of boyhood in 18th century Scotland. On one occasion, Mac has a dream. He dreams that he's down by the seaside near where his family lives, and he is confronted by a one-eyed witch. Mac's frightened, and he wakes up. And he goes to look for his father. And so his dad takes him up on his knee and asks him about his bad dream. Mike, Mac recites the vision of darkness that he's seen. And then his father, good Presbyterian that he is, says, Mac, how does Christ execute the office of a king? That's the shorter catechism question 26. Mac replies, Christ executeth the office of a king in subduing us to himself and ruling and defending us and in restraining and conquering all his and our enemies. And so Mac's dad looks at him and says, then you shall not be afraid of witches. 
If Christ is king, what have we to fear from darkness? Long before the catechism was written, the Apostle John put it this way, He who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. John was used by the Holy Spirit to write that because he was an eyewitness of it. He was one of the twelve in the boat on the day that Jesus went ashore at, at the Gerasenes, ruling and defending us, restraining and conquering His and our enemies. Let me try to put this life-altering, shattering portrait of Jesus in one takeaway sentence for us. Jesus has ended the devil's rule over all those who belong to Christ, so we should want to be with Him and go for Him. Jesus has ended the devil's rule over all those who belong to Christ, so we should want to be with Him and go for Him. Now, I hope to show you that that's what's revealed to us in this passage by making three observations from this portrait. First, we're going to see the condition of the country and of the man. The condition of the country and of the man. Second, we're going to see the submission of the demons. The submission of the demons. And then, all importantly, the responses of the people. The responses of the people. First of all, let's fill out the condition and see the condition of the country and the man. One author has put it this way, Jesus stepped off the boat that day into a living hell. Everything about the place and the person he met was darkness. If you've seen Peter Jackson's epic, The Lord of the Rings, he gives us that picture of Mordor. It is ashen gray. There is sulfur rising. You can feel the oppression of darkness. If you've ever been on a lovely walk through the woods enjoying the fragrances of the country and all of a sudden your nostrils are assaulted with that scent and you know something in there died. This land of the Gerasenes, as Luke portrays it to us, he wants us to see and sense the stench of death and the oppression of darkness when Jesus' boat arrives. The Gerasenes, or the Gadarenes as it's sometimes known, was on the opposite side of the Lake of Galilee, and it was opposite Galilee in more than geography. This was where good Israelites just did not go. It was a predominantly non-Jewish territory populated by people who were engaged in pagan religion. Our first clue is that there are pigs present, unclean. Mark's gospel, if we were reading it, tells us there's about 2,000. This is unclean territory. Not only are there pigs nearby, there are tombs. That means death more religiously unclean territory. And on top of all that, there were the Romans. This area was actually the base for the largest number of Roman troops on this side of the empire. This is enemy territory. This is the staging spot for Israel's oppressors. So get the portrait Luke is giving to us. The country onto which Jesus stepped is thick with spiritual impurity. The stench of death 
and oppressive bondage. This is a country where darkness rules. And that rule is devastatingly, dreadfully pictured in the tormented man who confronted Jesus. Do you remember Tolkien's character, Smeagol? If you know the story, you may know him better as Gollum. I want it. It's my precious. <laughs> the ugly, distorted, half-creature of the Lord of the Rings. Gollum used to be a healthy human being, Smeagol. And the awful creature we all remember was a manifestation of his being utterly consumed with darkness. The biography of this miserable man who confronted Jesus shows us the reality of what the unconquered power of darkness can do to a human being. Destroy their dignity for which they were created as image bearers of God. First of all, he's unclothed, running around naked because he's out of his mind. Second, he lives amongst the dead in the tombs. Third, He is utterly cut off from society. Did you notice? They have chained him up as far away as they could possibly get him. But the power of his tormentors is such that he can actually break those chains. And in his mad nakedness, he's driven from the place of death to the place of despair and back again. He says it goes, he goes from the tombs to the wilderness and back. And all of this happens because he is being perpetually assaulted by an entire gang of demons, legion. That was the Roman military designation for its largest unit of about 5,000. And there were clearly enough of these evil spirits that when they later inhabit the large herd of pigs, they drive them into the lake. So demons had driven the life of this man to the point where he lived, well, more like an animal than like a human being. Here's how Cyril of Alexandria summarized it, that early Christian leader. He said that the the story gives us a description of a man who is in great misery and nakedness. He wandered among the graves of the dead. He was in utter wretchedness, leading a disgraceful life, deprived of every blessing, destitute of all sobriety, and entirely deprived even of reason. Now, sitting here on a Sunday morning in a very pleasant environment where we look nice, we talk nice, we know how to present ourselves clothed and in our right mind, we might be tempted simply to look at this and relate to this picture of this pitiful person of ancient history. But here's the reality that God reveals to us. Without Christ, without Christ, Every one of us is under the life-dominating, destroying rule of the evil one. Here's the diagnosis that the Holy Spirit gives us in Ephesians chapter 2. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in what you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. That's Ephesians 2, 1 to 3. Have you ever known the sense of being completely exposed 
after you have been passionately satisfying your desires. My mind goes to the man who was really well put together, was really popular, had every advantage given to him in our uh, congregation that I once served, and then he was caught in a scandalous, repetitive sin by a loved one who then brought them to the pastor for some help. And this man who was so well put together, so popular, had every advantage, fell to pieces as he felt so exposed in the nakedness of shame. Have you ever had to take that long look at yourself in the mirror after you've been into that habit again and you ask yourself, what am I becoming? I must be out of my mind. My mind recalls the spouse who discovered that their spouse for many years was living a double life of secret sin that completely betrayed their entire life together. And the question was, are they out of their mind? I just don't recognize them anymore. How could they possibly behave like that? Have you ever encountered that? Have you ever experienced that? That's what sin does to people. That's what the power of darkness can do to people. This miserable, tormented man is simply one of the most pointed pictures of that misery of sin in all of Scripture. A human being who is under the rule of darkness. And the testimony of the Scripture is that darkness is that which we are all born into and by which we are all ruled outside of Jesus Christ. So here is the glorious good news about Jesus. In his sermon in his home synagogue in Nazareth, Luke chapter 4, Jesus gave us his mission statement, why he was sent and why he came. He said this in Luke 4, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me, listen, to proclaim liberty to the captives, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And Jesus did not leave this person unclean. He did not leave him harmful. He did not leave him homeless. He didn't leave him demon-driven. If you follow the text, verse 27, the man had many demons. Verse 35, but the demons left him. He had worn no clothes, but he was closed. He lived among the, the tombs, but he was restored to his home. He confronted Jesus and shouted at him, and then later sits at his feet. The demon seized him, and he's out of control, and later he's in his, and he's in his right mind. And then Jesus makes him a preacher. Jesus delivered him. Jesus restored him. Jesus renewed him for a God-glorifying purpose. And the glorious good news of Jesus only gets better when we consider carefully how Luke shows us that he did it. So besides seeing the condition of the country and the man, now would you see the subjection of the demons? The subjection of the demons. There's a Randall Wallace film called We Were Soldiers. It's about the U.S.'s first engagement in Vietnam. And in a definitive scene, the cavalry are swooping in on their helicopters into the valley to begin their first engagement. And Wallace cues us that the battle is about to be engaged by focusing the, ca the camera on the cavalry commander. And in slow motion, we watch the commander's foot step from the chopper and touch the ground. 
and we know the battle is on. It's almost the way that Luke has set the scene for us in verse 27. Do you notice how he puts it? When Jesus had stepped out on the land, there met him a man from the city who had demons. The king puts his foot on the field and all Hades breaks loose. Now we know from what happened to the pigs later on that there's a steep slope that comes from those tombs and runs down to the lake. The man's up there like Gollum running around in those tombs. And as soon as the Son of God puts His foot on the land, they know He's there and it's all over for them. The man rushed toward Jesus with a cry and a shout and He falls before His feet. What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? Now, That what have you to do with me, that was a well-known phrase. That was a phrase people would have used to say, you and I, we've got nothing in common. We've got nothing to do with each other. The unclean spirits knew the Holy Son of God had nothing in common with them and that His mere presence in their territory meant they could no longer remain. Because they knew He's the Son of the Most High God. If you read the Bible and you start at the beginning, there's a promise, a promise in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. Right after Adam put himself and all of us under the reign of Satan by listening to the serpent rather than God, God made a gracious promise. He promised that one of Eve's offspring would step on the serpent's head, a sign of utter conquest. And that promise runs through the Old Testament till you get to Psalm 110. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your, you can finish the sentence, footstool. Where are the demons when Jesus shows up on land? At his feet. God was going to send his son to rule in his name to put his foot on the neck of his enemies, especially the serpent, and those demons knew whose feet they now lie before, the promised son of God. And they know the fact that he's there means it's over for them. And that's why they beg, do not torment me. Do you notice? Three times they beg. Luke tells us they beg, do not torment me. They beg, do not do not command us to go into the abyss. They beg to go into the the pigs. Please don't miss the picture of Jesus. He single-handedly faces down a legion of demons and they fall at His feet and they beg. Later on in His ministry, Jesus will say this, but if if by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. When a strong man fully armed guards his own palace, his goods are safe. But when one stronger than he attacks him and overcomes him, he takes away his armor that he trusted and he divides the spoil. Here's the point of that. Jesus is the stronger man who has attacked and overcome the evil one and he's dividing up the spoils, life and liberty to those who are in the misery of sin. And when he steps onto that land on that day, the kingdom of darkness comes to its knees. Don't you see the glory? Don't you see the goodness of Jesus? So we shouldn't be afraid of witches. We shouldn't be afraid of the darkness. But maybe you're asking yourself, if Jesus has put the kingdom of darkness under His foot, why do I still get tempted? Why do I still get distressed? If Jesus appeared to destroy the works of the devil, 
which John says he did, why do I still wrestle against the rulers and authorities and cosmic powers over this present darkness, which Paul says we do in Ephesians 6? Here's the biblical answer. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 8. Now, in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. See, while all things, including the kingdom of darkness, watch the tense, have been put under Jesus' kingdom, we, we do not yet see it in the world around us. While Jesus' kingdom has come in the hearts and lives of all those in whom He rules, while all things have been put under Jesus' feet as He sits at the right hand of the Father, having died, been raised, and now victoriously reigning, we do not yet see that in this present age because we are awaiting the return of the King. And you see that already not yet kind of emphasis in how he actually deals with the demons by not casting them into the abyss. The abyss is the place of final judgment for the devil, for for the final judgment for demons and sinful humanity. It's the eternal assignment for all God's enemies after the final judgment. But on this day when Jesus shows up, the cross is still in front of him. The resurrection is still in front of him. His ascension is still in front of him. His return is still in front of him. Think of it this way. It's like D-Day, June 6, 1944, when a massive Allied expeditionary force lands on the beaches of Europe. And while the war in Europe will go on for another year, the minute that force got on the beach, all the Allies and the German high command knew it's over. It's just a matter of time. The final incursion has been made. When Jesus showed up on the shore of the Gerasenes and put his foot down, he was putting the kingdom of darkness on notice in enemy territory that his kingdom has begun and the final outcome is beyond question, whatever, whatever the journey looks like from here to there. It's only a matter of time until we see Christ's rule as he returns manifest in the new heavens, in the new earth. And you see that in this man. Jesus did not yet command the unclean spirits to go out of the world in which we live, but notice that they must obey His command. They must relinquish their rule of this man for whom He had come. The subjection of the legion of demons shows us that Jesus has ended now the devil's rule over all those who belong to Christ. And when He comes again, it will be finally fully ended. So, how then do we walk? How then do we witness? How then do we prevail in this yet present darkness as those who have been liberated and still walk through this fallen world? Here's the answer. Stay close to the King. And that brings us to the most important question. And if you've heard nothing else to this point, this is the question you have to answer. How do we respond to this glorious Jesus? See, it's not enough just to know who Jesus is. The demons knew who He was. See, it's not enough just to even agree who Jesus is. James will tell us in James chapter 2, the demons believe and shudder. 
See, the response to this Christ is not just to know who He is. It's not even just to agree who He is. It's by faith to commit yourself to being fully His. And we see the difference in the response in the the people who show up at the end. So finally and very quickly, notice with me the responses of the people. This episode gives us two responses which evidence two kinds of different hearts towards Jesus. Response number one, leave me alone. Response number two, I want to be with you, Jesus. First response comes from the townspeople. Do you notice that they had the facts? Do you notice they were told what happened? They came and they actually saw what happened. I mean, they could see the guy they chained up sitting at Jesus' feet, clothed and in his right mind. And so they said, praise the Lord, we need this Christ. No. They asked him to depart from him because they were seized with great fear. Now, why do you think those townspeople would see this man healed in his right mind, the demons gone, and they would be seized with great fear? Two reasons. Because of the pigs. A herd that size represented great wealth. And the fact that they were kept near those tombs, scholarly research shows us that most likely it means they were being used in the practice of pagan worship and sacrifice to the dead. The presence and authority of the Holy Son of God meant that he was going to mess with their wealth and he was going to mess with their false worship and so they wanted him gone. And even the miracle of mercy that he lavished on this man was not compelling to them. They wanted Jesus to leave them alone because this kind of sovereign, glorious authority was going to mess with the way of life they had learned to enjoy. Leave us alone. But that's not the only response. Here's response number two. I want to be with you. That's a response of a person who knew how desperate their state was and they're sitting there basking in the might and basking in the mercy of Jesus. He wants to be with Jesus. He wants to be one of His disciples. He wants to commit His whole life to following Him. That's the response of faith. I see my need for Christ. I've tasted the mercy and the might of God in Christ, and I want Christ in all of His holiness, in all of His authority, in all of His mercy. I want to be with you. Now, Jesus has got other plans. He's going to make him a missionary. And we'll look at that next week. But could I ask you, is that your response to Jesus? You who have seen Christ in His glory and His goodness... You who have heard what He's done, I know you have because I know your pastors and I know what you hear from the pulpit year after year after year after year. And if this is your first Sunday in church, you've heard it today. Maybe your response is simply, well, I know who Jesus is and I really respect Him. In fact, I tremble before Him. They did that. Are you responding any differently than the townspeople? You know, I know who Jesus is and His authority threatens my lifestyle a little bit, so I'd kind of like Him to leave. 
Or are you responding like someone who knows you need Him and has experienced His delivering power and savoring His mercy? Jesus, I want to be with you. I want to be all yours. Here's the difference, illustrated. Many years ago, I remember watching the footage of a natural disaster in the United States where there had been lots of flooding and the waters had come up to the roofs of people's houses. People were stranded on the roofs of their houses for prolonged periods of time. And I remember watching one scene where the Coast Guard flew over with a helicopter and dropped a a basket down onto the roof of somebody's house uh, to rescue them. And the person had been there for days. They were exposed. They were without the food and water and they were tired and they managed to make themselves their way across to that basket and they flopped themselves in the basket and were lifted and liberated to safety now here's sometimes what we do with jesus i know that's a basket i agree it's a basket but i'm not getting in the basket saving faith I know who He is, I agree with who He is, and I throw myself on His death and resurrection as my only hope of salvation. Jesus Christ has ended the devil's rule over all those who belong to Christ. So do you want to be with Him? Let's pray. O Lord, our God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, you have in the Lord Jesus Christ accomplished the salvation of your people. And when Jesus returns again, his victory, his rule, his power will be manifest throughout the heavens and the earth in final judgment and consummation. Lord, we thank you that for all who belong to the Lord Jesus, they have been lifted from the domain of darkness and placed into the kingdom of your beloved Son. And so we pray that you would deepen our faith in him, deepen our loyalty to him, deepen our conformity to him and compel our service for him in the courage that comes by faith. And Lord, we pray that if there would be any who as yet have not bowed the knee and confessed with the tongue that Jesus is Lord, that today you would give them that sovereign, saving grace to believe. And we pray it for the glory of God and the good of the innumerable souls that Jesus died to save. Amen.